Hello everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. I'm here to answer the question you've all been asking, where is the next episode? Well, put simply, we decided to hold off on production in response to the current COVID crisis. Now, whilst COVID remains an issue for our members and everyone else, you'll be very happy to hear we are returning to our normal release schedule. In this special episode, we are focusing specifically on the COVID-19 situation, showing you how to manage key stakeholder relationships, access government support, maximise the opportunities arising from these tough times, and most importantly, how to prepare your business to bounce back from this crisis. And now over to Sam Smith and our guest for this podcast, Bob Ellis. Hello. So welcome. I'm delighted to introduce Bob Ellis. Bob, uh, Bob's had over 30 years in business, uh, initially as a CFO, uh, then a CEO, uh, Chief Restructuring Officer, Advisor, and now Chair, uh, to private equity backed, to uh, PLCs, and to entrepreneurial boards. He's worked across a multitude of sectors. I mean, I can't list them all, there are so many of them, but uh, manufacturing, automotive, engineering, oil and gas, business services, telecommunications, media, uh, transport and logistics, and, and many more. Uh, Bob currently sits on 10 boards, seven of which as chair, uh, three as non-executive. Uh, those boards range from uh, $3 billion revenue businesses, one of those being KCA Dirtag, an oil and gas uh, service provider, Four private equity-backed mid-market businesses around the sort of 100 to 200 million revenue brackets. Um, one of those, uh, just an example, is uh, Stellrad, the radiator manufacturer. And he sits on three entrepreneurial boards, uh, which is sub-10 million in revenue, including First Class Learning, which is a provider of educational centres. So he's got he's always had the sort of full breadth of experience from entrepreneurial to, to supersized businesses and, and still does. Uh, his specialisms really are in uh, refinancing, always have been, <laughs> refinancing, operational cost control, turnarounds and, and commercial turnarounds. Uh, and he's worked with countless PE funds. I mean, those currently that he's working with include Pampelona, Brigal, Sovereign, uh, recently CBC, EMK, but historically many, many more. So he's in a great position to, to talk to us about working with PE through distressed times. Big intro. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks very much indeed. Um, you know, as uh, Sam says, you know, my background is in restructuring um, and repositioning business uh, commercially. I've been doing it for just a very long time. I'm very old. So <laughs> I have you know, accumulated lots of years and hopefully lots of experience over that period of time. Okay, so should we, should we start off with, with my first question, uh, which is um, really how, how have you approached um, managing your portfolio companies uh, in, in dealing with this crisis? What are you expecting of them and, and how, what sort of practices are they putting in place to deal with it? So the classic things, we've set up everybody who we need to work remotely, then looked at capacity, how many people do we actually need in the business at the moment, and we've then gone ahead and started furloughing people that we no longer need in the business to actually work at all. And then we've got waves of that, if you like, depending on what we think activity levels might do. So we've probably got ourselves planned through to operating at something like 20% capacity 
of normal capacity at the end of this year with programs and people identified in terms of what waves they go out in. We've gone to the executive teams, or in fact, actually, to be fair, I'm not even sure that's true. The executive teams have all volunteered to take some form of salary reduction. Um, the form is varied, the quantum is varied, and that, we think, makes sense. There's been no sort of overall, it must be 20% or it must be 30%. You know, the businesses in my, I work with are all in different places. Well, what's, what's, what's the private equity view on... Um, salary sacrifice from, from I don't business. think we've seen anybody has got a view to be honest I mean it's interesting what I've seen is that people, we haven't the, the debate's never been initiated so far by the private equity fund it's always been initiated by the management taking a lead with their own workforce the other thing I think we're doing quite a lot of is looking at um, our, both our customer base and our supply chain so I suspect many of you will have seen customers and suppliers reacting sometimes in a way that you thought they would and sometimes not reacting like that at all. Mm. So we do have a program going on actually in all the businesses to formally now evaluate you know, how our customers and suppliers have re responded to this particular action. And I think that will, when we talk about coming out of this, will have some impact on how we think about dealing with customers and suppliers going forward mm. over a period of time. So customers, for example, who just adamantly say they're no way they're going to pay you when you don't think that they've got a justifiable reason for that may well not be customers long term I think. Great to hear a bit more about how you're undertaking those customer reviews just to understand what good and bad looks like. So I think we're, we're doing so we have our salespeople effectively we've actually given them effectively a different brief. So we are actually having them do some intensive work on their own customer base and, and planning with their customers about what comes out of this. So we've got customers, for example, who've delayed orders. So clearly talking to customers about, you know, is this a delay, is this a cancellation, will this order still be there, you know, when you start back up again. But also then talking to customers more intensively about longer term projects. So we've got more customers actually sitting, sitting with thinking themselves about what does good look like when I come out of this? And we're doing the same, I think, with suppliers. We have a program on, in each of the businesses, all, all slightly different, but all fundamentally about supplier evaluation. You know, we've now scorecarded those suppliers, for example. Most of our companies, we did this anyway. What we've simply done now is got spending a little bit more time on marking the card of suppliers to actually work out which of those people actually make most sense. You've spent a career dealing with businesses in financial crises. Uh, so I mean, what, what's, what does good cash management look like for you uh, across your businesses in this situation? So I think you have to start with a base level cash flow forecast. Um, if you're owned by a private equity company, I suspect most of you are used to doing rolling 13-week cash flow forecast on a receipt and payment basis. One, you know, those those are the bedrock, I think, of trying to think through, you know, what my cash position actually is. So if you're not doing a rolling cash flow forecast and updating it on a frequent basis, then you really just have to do that. Focus on receipts. As I said, you know, a big mistake is not to bring in the cash that's due to you. Focus on in invoicing cycle. So we've, in some cases, shortened the invoicing cycle from monthly to biweekly. 
So, you know, are there ways at this point where you can actually issue invoices on a more frequent basis to customers and try and get ahead of the payment cycle that you had previously? So in one business we have, that's been successful, for example. We've simply increased the frequency, which in theory, if we apply it to all our customers, would bring our cash inflow forward a couple of weeks. Um, we're sympathetic to customers' requests for delayed payments, but we do need them to evidence why they need a delay. So phoning up and saying, I'd like to delay the payment that's due on Friday in itself is not enough. What we have is a sort of a short questionnaire of things to go through to make sure that they're doing everything they can do to assist their own business before they push the pressure back on us. Um, that's interesting in that we've had a standard question, for example, on have you applied for any of the government loan schemes? And I'll come to that in a moment, but um, we have yet to find a single customer who's been successful in getting any funding from the government in terms of a loan scheme so far. Mm. Uh, which is which is interesting. Um, so as I said, you also need to be careful that you don't trigger your own credit insurance if you have it in place on your customers. Uh, by agreeing a variation in terms, you effectively fulfill of the rules you've agreed with your own credit insurer. So you need somebody just being conscious that every time you reach an accommodation with a customer, you don't actually either push the payment out so it falls outside the credit insured terms where you make a change to it that actually impacts it. If you think you need to do that, I would advise talking to the credit insurers. We have seen some sympathetic reactions this time to, um, to maybe changing some of those conditions on an informal basis through this process. So it's certainly worth looking at that. Um, in terms of sort of strategies, we, we have stressed to everybody that you need to be ethical in this process. And it's probably, it's an unusual set of circumstances, I think, in that, you know, this is not like a, like a normal recession, mm -hmm. right? Everybody across the board has been impacted in some way by this in some form, apart from maybe, the, maybe food retailers, right? Mm -hmm. But for most other businesses have been impacted by this. And so it's not a situation where people who would have paid you or you would have paid are trying to get an advantage. People just need to be consistent and ethical through this process. So with, with suppliers, we have a standard formula, if you like, we're using for payments that were due to me. We are asking whether the supplier can afford to give us a discount. We are asking whether the supplier can agree to defer the payment, either in whole or in part. We're looking carefully at the, at, the, at the supplier to look at whether we think he's already got some government support through this process. So to the extent they've either raised public equity or publicly quoted corporation, or they've made an announcement that they've actually accessed the scheme for very large companies, we're saying to those companies, you've already received funding from the government. You shouldn't be pushing as much pressure down to us. We've had one conversation so far where that's been successful. So a company that we knew had accessed um, public funding and are actually, to be fair to them, have actually said they're using that public funding to ease the pressure, um, pressure um, effectively on supplies to them. So we, we've actually not had an issue with people coming back and asking for different payment terms on orders yet. So where we've got businesses that are operating close to normally, we're actually seeing close to normal orders coming into the business because they tend to be businesses themselves that are operating 
in some form of normality at this point in time if they're actually placing orders for some of the products we actually make. So we haven't had, I've not seen that issue yet. I think, you know, clearly if you, the minimum you should be explaining to the customer, I think, is their, their payments need to match your costs. Mm. So offering somebody a deferred payment for your, for your net margin may be sensible, but clearly you don't want to be in a situation where you have a payment schedule from the customer that is not aligned with your own cost for incremental business. So perhaps matching the two, you know, old-fashioned, I need to buy the product, I need to buy the inputs, you need to give me 10% then. Yeah, when I've made it, I've got the labour's gone, gone on to it, you need to pay me another 30% then, but I'm prepared to wait for the last 15%, if that's your net margin, um, you know, for an extra month at the end of the process. So you've had a chance as a customer to sell the product on and make your profit. I mean, you, you sit across um, 10 different boards, seven of those sort of PE orientated. So how are your PE partners behaving? Uh, is there a difference of behavior across, across the different firms? And if so, how? Um, so they're all behaving differently because they all behave differently all the time. <laughs> um, so for those of you who've worked for more than one PE firm in your career, you'll know they're, they're not an amalgamous beast, if you like. So I think those that, are, that have a very sort of hands-on operational style were holding very frequent calls about, you know, what the plan is and how we're enacting it. So for those businesses, we're, we're now effectively having at least weekly calls. In one case, we're having a bi-weekly call because it's a much more dynamic situation. Um, but generally, they're, they're looking to management to rise to the challenge. This is not private equity territory, right? Yeah. You know, so the idea, for example, that you should talk to a customer about a payment plan which matches your cash outflows to the stage of the contract, most private equity company executives would look at you like you were blank, right? Mm -hmm. They just don't get this stuff because they've never actually run businesses and on a real sense, on a day-to-day, -day, how do you actually deal with these, uh, these crises? You know, what the executive teams in the business and the boards in the business have actually done is actually put together a comprehensive plan as to why we're doing it in this particular way. And all of them want to show leadership effectively across this process. I think we're going to come back a bit in yeah. a bit more detail with, the, with working with the PE partners, but let's get into government-backed loans because um, I think we're probably, everybody, including us, has gone to this sort of position of, okay, well, how do you, cutting the cost base, you know, survival, furloughing and so on, but... You, you've done a lot of this, haven't you, in terms of yeah. businesses? Tell us about it. What, what have you done? Well, so, so, so for government support, <laughs> um, there's some real positives, if you like. So the job retention scheme looks on paper to be a great scheme. Okay? So if you, don't, if you need to furlough people, which is you need, you need to take people out of the workforce permanently, but for a limited period of time, it looks like a really good scheme. So we're finding, I'm surprised how high the contribution from the government is at 80%. Because the reality is for most people who earn less than £30,000 a year, you effectively end up with something which for the employee, when you take out their cost of coming to work and being at work, on a net basis, they're only marginally worse off and the company is no worse off at all. In those circumstances, you actually can meet the whole of the 80% out of the two and a half thousand pounds cap the government has made. 
So it is a phenomenal scheme, and it, but it only works where you do not want those people today, but you think you will need them in the future. And we'll talk a little bit about what might happen as we come out of this. So that's been, I think, very good. Deferment of payments. So the initial response of deferring PAY and VAT was very, very helpful, I think, to lots of people. I think we'll see some of that unwind. I'm not sure how much people have got their minds around this yet, but I don't think you'll get PAY deferments, for example, for people who are on furlough. So if the government's going to meet 80% of the cost, I think it's going to want you to pay your national insurance contributions when you get the grant. In fact, you'll, I think you'll get it netted off the grant the way I, I think the scheme is going to work through RTI. So if you thought you were going to get permanent cash inflow from not paying any national insurance or PAY contributions, I think you'll find from the middle of May onwards that may not be the case. And for those people you furloughed, you will actually be having to make those payments. Um, so that's a good scheme, if you like, I think, and, and it's been sort of very effective at the moment. Um, in terms of where we are, business rate relief for those businesses that qualified has it's been a phenomenal um, process, I think. Um, so the things they've done so far, I think, in terms of the things they could do most quickly have been fine. The issue we're all facing, I think, now is where you actually need a loan of some form. And, you know, there are, in theory now, three schemes. There's the scheme for investment grade borrowers. I said there's just are very few of those in the UK, you know, and they tend to be public corporations or very large, very profitable private companies, which are, un, which are not highly geared, which don't really exist in practical terms because private equity would typically, you know, have subpar investment grade debt in most of the things they've actually invested in to get the leverage they actually require. So there's a very small number of people at the top. At the bottom, we have applied for all of my smaller companies, we have put in an application. But what that actually means is we've filled in the website form. Okay? Which has got like one question as to why you need the money. In each case, we've prepared a business case. What sort of business cases are you proposing? So we, we, we think there are three rationales right, that you could use. So we've been deferring VAT, we've been deferring business rents, um, we've been deferring other payments where we can. All of those at some stage will need to be repaid. So one thing you could ask for is effectively is a cash loan to pay the deferred payments and spread the costs of those deferred payments over a longer period of time. The second one I think is we're trying at the moment to put together business cases for capital investment or business development expenses that we would have incurred, where because of the cash flow situation, we're not able to do that. And we're putting forward proposals which try and match the benefit of those proposals with the loan repayment periods. So pick an example. We've got one at the moment where we were due to build a new lab. Um, cost to us was going to be about £750,000. It's going to come out of cash flow generated during the course of this year. That particular business is very seasonal. I mean, very seasonal. It's got like a three-month season. Um, it's directly in, in this period. And so we don't expect that business to generate the profits we thought it would, and that puts the capital expenditure at risk. So we're looking for a loan effectively to replace that cash flow to be repaid over the benefit we'll get from having the lab in circulation over the next two to three years. So trying to match. And then there, I think there's the third category, which is we just need some money. 
our profitability is significantly less than we thought it would be, and we're not going to be able to meet all of our obligations, um, deferred or otherwise, as they fall due. And at the moment, we're all living in this sort of slightly honeymoon land, which is, you know, it's for a three-month period of time, it's not a criminal offence to um, trade insolvently, but that's going to run out at some point in time. And so all of us are going to be spending a lot of our time going, well, how do I get this business to trade solvently when I've had a three or four month of maybe 50 or 70% less income coming into the business? And although I've offset some of the costs, I've not been able to either offset them. And the ones I've offset, some of those I've deferred and I've just pushed the problem further down the road. Mm. So those are the three areas we've been looking at. And we've got business cases prepared, but we have yet to put one in front of the lender. So that's an issue. And then the middle ground, so turnovers above 45 million, below 500 million, um, which is the larger company scheme that the government had last weekend, I think is probably going to be the most complicated. Let me explain why. So at the, at, the, at the small company, most people have a direct relationship with a high street lender, or they have a direct relationship with one of the new entrant banks coming into the market. In the middle market, a lot of us have relationships with direct lenders rather than high street banks, or we have relationships with ABL providers who may be subdivisions of large banks, or they may be separate organizations altogether. And it's not clear yet whether those people are going to participate in that government-backed scheme for the mid-market. And if they don't, the problem is going to be that for most of those loans, the lender will have taken security over your assets in some form. And the question is going to be, how do you put a new lender, if you can find one, into that security package successfully? So that is an issue. And I don't think, because we've got no guidance yet, we're not expecting any, I think, until the end of next week, as to how that scheme's going to work could be a big issue. With the small company scheme, there's 80% government um, guaranteed, 20% 20% is on the business or on the business owners. So how, how is private equity going to cope with that 20%? So I think typically you'd use the security that the business might have. So if you hadn't already allocated all the security. So we're, so let's, let's assume, let me take a, a mid-sized business effectively, you know, which was levered at three, three and a half times going in. If that's the leverage, I pretty well guarantee the securitization arrangements cover all of the assets in the business. So you've actually signed a security document that basically pledges everything. So the only person who can, who can lend to you without coming into some sort of subordinated um, relationship is going to be your existing lender. And if your existing lender isn't one of the existing 40, they're going to have to apply to be a lender under the new business scheme, and they're going to have to want to do it. So if you think of who those direct lending funds are, which are all essentially offshoots of hedge funds, the first question is, are they going to want to become direct participants in the scheme? But let's assume they do. Right? So let's assume that you're existing lender. So your existing lender, then can you, you then put an application in for a loan on some reasonable basis, and the lender wants to lend to you. So he gets 80% of the loan effectively guaranteed by the government. He has to find security for the other 20%. You may have excess security in your existing security package. Either security you've given him for your existing loan may be more than he needs for that loan, and therefore he may be happy effectively that he's got sufficient security with the existing security arrangement, but he may not. 
And if he's not happy, then how do you get around it? So ultimately, I think there is a place here for private equity to play, but it's complicated, I think. And I think you need to sort of understand a bit about how private equity funds work. So most private equity funds have the ability to make investments, which if they're repaid within 12 month period of time, don't count as permanent use of capital. So if they were to provide capital into the business, which in itself is usually technically difficult, but if they were to provide a guarantee, for example, and it's for less than 12 months, and the guarantee fell away, it wouldn't be a permanent use of the capital within the fund itself. So some of them might be prepared to do that. I mean, for those of you who've worked with the private equity a long time, you know getting them to provide guarantees or indemnities is notoriously difficult, but it's not impossible. There are lots of businesses going through a difficult turnaround who've actually managed to get some form of parent, a fund guarantee. And normally the fund's creditworthiness is really high. Right? So most funds themselves have their own banking lines and have actually been, have actually had their own um, financial worth actually certified. So most of them can do it if they if they need to do it. So one way would be to take the loan and get the fund to provide the guarantee. If it goes beyond a year, that's going to be more difficult, I think, unless the fund then goes back to its limited partners and asks its limited partners to change its arrangement for how long it can have this money out in relation to COVID-19. So with one fund, we have that discussion going on at the moment which is, would you provide the guarantee? And if you provided the guarantee, could you provide it for longer than a year? Yeah. What about dealing with the banks on existing loans? So I think in preparation for this, you said you haven't actually really sort of... So it's moved on since we spoke 24 hours ago. Was it? Right. So the answer is we've now started approaching lenders for effectively three things. So at this stage, we've approached them for deferring effectively capital repayments that were due in the next quarter, so the quarters of the end of June. Um, and we're suggesting we defer those and pay them over the whole of 2021. So take the capital payment and actually spread it over four quarters, increase the four quarter payments to 21 as the first ask. We've asked for something similar on interest. We've asked for interest again through the next quarter, but with a, a sort of a memo note that we might want the interest not paid. Um, where we can, we've adjusted interest payment periods. So where we would typically have taken um, at a quarterly interest payment where the documentation allows that we've extended those periods to six months or a year. So to, to actually push off the next interest payment beyond the one we've got at the moment. And we've asked for covenant relief. So of the three things, I think the easiest one it's going to be to get is temporary covenant relief. So I think the one that people will concede the most easily is probably two quarters at the moment. So probably the June quarter and the September quarter, and maybe even the March quarter if you were caught early in this process and March had a dramatic downturn against what you were expecting. Mm-hmm. So I think the covenant relief is the one I, I'm talking to bankers I'd expect to get most sympathy for. Deferring capital payments will come next on the list and deferring interest payments will come last on the list in terms of the things I'd like to give. I, w- I want to spend about as much time as we can talking about how we can be preparing the businesses to come to come back from this. But one, one very quick question, let's just cover, cover it quite quickly, around, again, dealing with your private equity partner. It's just the approach to them charging their fees. So it, yeah, may, I, be, it may be that everybody's already done this, but... Um, 
I've heard it's a problem, but I haven't seen it as a problem, right? We've simply said to them, um, we're not expecting to pay you this quarter's fee. No one said to me, no, you have to pay this quarter's fee. So we haven't paid it. We don't plan to pay it. Um, and I guess it's probably a breach of the investment agreement. But I don't think anybody seems to have been... Uh, so no one's told me you, you need to get formal approval for not paying it. We've simply put it on a list of things we're not paying and, 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 and discussed it with them. When we've you've you've led that charge. Yeah, look, look, if they're telling you that, you know, if, if they're encouraging everybody to take pay reductions and encouraging you to furlough people, you know, at minimum levels, then there has to be some equality in this process here. And how would you approach a difficult relationship just now where there is a sort of locking of horns? I think you have to be very open, you know, and it depends what, I mean, if, you, if you're coming off the cusp of a very difficult relationship, um, the thing you have to be careful of, I think, is the private equity firm doesn't believe you're doing everything you can. So I'd over-communicate. Um, I wouldn't seek permission, though. Okay, so I would have the board stand up for itself in terms of what it's doing rather than seek private equity consent. So unless you've got something which under your investment agreement requires investor direct or investor consent, I would get the board to decide what it wants to do and just do it. But I'd do it in a fulsome way. I'd explain to you why we're doing it. Um, okay, let's, let's talk about how we should be thinking about coming out of this. So... My view is that most businesses now have got good levels of planning for not only the current circumstance, but what might happen if it gets a little bit worse, a lot worse, or very worse. So people, you know, I think have spent the last three to four weeks going through that process. So my argument to all my management teams is actually you've probably got a period of four to six weeks where you've got more time to think about the business than you would ordinarily have because you spent so much time in the last three to four weeks planning for every eventuality, and all you're going to be doing is basically ticking a implement box. Um, so now is the time to start thinking about where you, you know, if you've got strategic issues in the business, what you should do about them. The other thing is that, you know, professional advisors at the moment are really cheap. So if you ever want some advice on something, so let me take a pick an example. So one of my large companies, for example, we've had the back of our mind forever. Uh, it may make sense to split the business into two because the characteristics of parts of the business are very different. And we've never really had time to do that. We started that project four weeks ago and we have a team of actually 15 people from one of the accounting firms working on how we would do that. And we're probably paying 30% of rack rate in fees, I were probably covering their cost and no more than that during this period of time. So there is an opportunity, I think, to use professional advisors. There's an opportunity, I think, still to do deals. We put a bid in for a business in Germany, 100 million euro turnover business this week, for example. It's a conditional bid. Um, we're going to do due diligence remotely. We're going to do the face-to-face -face diligence as a condition precedent for signing the deal. We've structured the deal to cope with what the business is doing through COVID-19 in terms of the way in which we, we establish the value and how we actually pay it. There's nothing to stop you, I think, actually still doing deals. And yet again, you'll find that you know, corporate finance professionals are all sitting on their hands at the moment, so you're getting very cheap rates if you want to work through the summer, at least on some of those areas. 
I think already you're beginning to see some changes. I think looking at a whole bunch of processes internally, looking at relationships, so supplier relationships, I mean, important, I think. Do you really need, well, did you, did you go down the route of having single source supply and now regret it? The problem the National Health Service has had in getting supplies of um, protective equipment is because it had largely single sourced from China. And it had done it in two stages under two different contracts, from an original contract with DHL and then a secondary contract of second contract with Unipar uh, Logistics. Um, and it's put, a, it's put all of its purchasing through a central um, service. And that is a major, major issue. So I think people will, will change supply chain relationships, for example. Uh, and we're, we're seeing some of that already. So one of our companies supplies Amazon, for example. Amazon now won't buy certain products and services outside the UK. And they say it's a strategic change that they're making. Now, it stops us having an export opportunity, but, but actually secures, I think, a large proportion of their business in the UK marketplace. So I think you'll see people think through their business models. And I personally would encourage management teams to spend the time. Not They probably haven't had the time today, but I think you'll find that if we go through an elongated uh, period, you will have a little bit more time to actually start thinking about, does the business model really work? What are the big decisions we've put off taking that we really ought to take now? Across your businesses, are you are you you probably were doing some senior level hires or certainly thinking about it? <clears throat> Have you just sort of postponed those completely? Um, taken yeah, we, plan or we have, we have, but I do think this is a brilliant opportunity to evaluate your management team. Right, I I do think that how a team responds to this crisis, both individually and as a team, will mark a lot of cards coming out of this process. So I think you'll see, I suspect you'll see a lot of change going forward. Because I think the one thing private equity will, be, will have been doing is looking at how CEOs, chairman, and executive teams have responded in this process. So I don't think you'll see much at the moment, Sam, but I think I would expect, you know, once we come through this, people will look back at this and go, you know, which people really, really <coughs> got this um, and got their team and their, and their employee base, you know, on side and motivated. And there will definitely be executive winners and losers out of this process. So in all the companies I work on, we have a formal evaluation process. We use a strange tool that we, one of our private equity firms developed in Switzerland for doing performance evaluation. We do it every quarter. So we have a method of actually evaluating executive team performance on a quarterly basis. Um, so I, and you basically end up in, the way the process works, you end up in one of three camps. You're either a, a keeper, a lever, or you're an improver, effectively. It's, it's a bit more sophisticated than that, but essentially, I think a lot of improvers have moved to keepers. And I haven't seen a lot of people in that improved category going to levers. Mm. So the levers haven't necessarily done any better. They're probably going to be exited in the next three. But a lot of people you had question marks about have risen famously to the challenge through this period of time. It might have been the injection they needed yeah. to actually become a better performer um, because there was a real grim reality around what was happening to the business. I'll tell you better after we do the evaluations again at the end of quarter two. Uh, that's been great, Bob. Thank you so much. I hope we've managed to give our audience something to think about and uh, take back to, to their roles and their businesses. 
Well, just good luck to everybody. This is pretty dynamic situation and probably one you know, none of us have ever seen in, you know, I've been through probably every economic crisis that's ever, any of you could ever remember apart from the 1931 one, um, but pretty well everyone since then. But this is worse than that. This is much more complex, I think. And I think coming out is going to be complex. So, you know, we're going to have country by country startups, bits of country by bits of country startups, managing the, up, the outcome or how you come out of this is going to be interesting, I think. Um, should be beneficial because you'll see more opportunity, I think, coming out of it, but it's not going to be a simple process as you come out of this. No. And um, it'd be great to talk to you again, actually, in, in, in about six to eight weeks' time as we've moved on. Very happy to do that. Okay, Bob. Thanks very much. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.